0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished speaking to Caroline Ford about her new book, Natural Interests, The Contest Over the Environment in Modern France. This book was released by Harvard University Press in 2016. Ford's book shows how French environmental consciousness did not be- begin in the post-war period, but stretches back into the 18th and 19th centuries. Ford explores the actors' and popularizers' of environmental thinking, the crisis of resource depletion, and French Romanticism for the natural world. War, environmental disaster, and revolution exposed the fragility of the nation and its dependence on a habitable and sanitary space for French society. Deforestation, urban life, and industrial capitalism required a critical reassessment of the human capacity to cause rapid environmental damage. Empire, art, politics, and national identity, hinges on the preservation of forests and public green space well before the contemporary discourses of the environmental movement in the 1960s and 1970s. It was a pleasure to talk to Caroline, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today we will be speaking with Caroline Ford about her new book, Natural Interests, Contests Over the Environment in Modern France. Caroline is a professor of history at UCLA. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get into the book, I'd like to ask you a few questions. First, what made you decide to become a historian?
1: Well, uh, actually, my undergraduate degrees um, are in French and English literature. Okay. And as I took history courses um, at the same time, And um, during my junior year, I went to France and spent a year there and increasingly um, became disenchanted with um, the way in which the study of literature was being done and became more interested in actually the context in which the literature was produced. And it's really from that starting point that I got into history and so... Um, when I got my BA, which was not in history, um, I applied to graduate school in history um, and went to the University of Chicago.
0: I guess that, that sort of explains uh, environmental history to a certain extent. Uh, why uh, Your other books were sort of interested in uh, religion and some other topics. What, what got you into environmental history in particular?
1: Well, there is a link in a way. I mean, I'm a historian who, there are historians who sort of plow the same kind of ground per, per, uh, throughout their entire career. They work on mm-hmm. the French Revolution, and they publish five books on different aspects of the French Revolution. Um, I'm a historian who has a lot of different kinds of interest, and perhaps mm-hmm. because of my uh, background in another field, um, I I consider myself really a social, political historian, and more recently an environmental historian. However, uh, my first book was on, um, was called Creating the Nation in, in Provincial France, Religion and Political Identity in Brittany, and it's on a rural region of France, in fact, one of the most okay. rural regions of France, and the, the, the subject was really how this region became integrated into the nation state. And in the context of that, um, I did a lot of work in rural history, peasant societies, uh, how they were organized, and this is part of um, um, really a study that's very well established in France, comes out of the Annal school. And so, you know, environmental history itself in France—it's—it's it's, as I mentioned in my introduction, it's come to France in that packaged form, environmental history, relatively late. But you could Mm -hmm. say that the French have been doing a form of environmental history really since the 20s and 30s, and it is associated with the Annales School. So there is an element um, in my very first book, my doctoral dissertation, that links the book that has just come out and uh, how I began. I don't know if that answers that exactly. Yeah,
0: no, no, it's interesting. I I uh I was like uh reading maybe the first 50 pages and you did not you did not explicitly talk so much about Annales, but I was like, "Oh, this sounds like uh, Fernand Brodel, like uh hmm. uh the Mediterranean in well, uh, the age
1: of the second. When you think about um somebody like Brodel and his work on the Mediterranean or other Annales historians, they were Roi Ladurie, who at the end of his career was interested in climate history. Really, the the impact um, of the environment over the long durée, um, which they thought had a you know very important role that historians had neglected, in focusing on politics um, or social organization.
0: Yeah, no, that that that's interesting, especially um, when you think about climate. This book so much is about. Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, destruction of lands and and uh, deforestation and and how these things change climate and how even in the um, 18th century there were sort of inklings that this this was going to be a serious problem and that France's uh, climate was being changed by human interaction, mm-hmm. which is really interesting uh, because even even in our own day there are people that will sort of you know say oh well you know humans can't have any real tangible effect on mm-hmm. you know long term mm-hmm. weather patterns and these sorts of things. So it's an interesting. Um, Interesting uh, subject matter for sure. I, I think one of the things we should talk about as well in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, you talk about how, uh, for the long, longest time, historiography on modern France has sort of, uh, said, well, you know, the environment wasn't really a subject in French society until the post-war period. But you, you really push back and say, Hey, wait, like people were really thinking about this seriously, um, all the way back to, uh, you know, revolutionary times, and even before that, to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, going back really to uh, the 17th century, and the historian who um, really, I think, opened up this topic or the question once again, and really challenged before, long before me, uh, this whole notion that environmentalism as a movement or as a set of ideas is something associated with Northern Europe, the United States, Scandinavia, and so on, is is Richard Grove and his book Green Imperialism, which actually looked at several French administrators in what he called the tropical island Edens in the Indian Ocean and saw that in the 17th century they were thinking about resources were not, um inexhaustible, uh deforestation, all these kinds of elements. And so I think I'm not alone in challenging this, but it has become a kind of orthodoxy. Um the American historian who's perhaps most associated um with this notion that it's a post-World War II phenomenon is Michael Bess. Um in his book uh, The Light Green Society, um, which he published in the 90s. And he actually calls the whole period in which I am looking at the prehistory of environmentalism. It's It's not a real environmentalism. And I think a lot of the reasons for this view is that environmentalism is defined in this very, very narrow late 20th century terms. It has to be a certain kind – it's got to be associated with a certain kind of politics. It has to be a political movement in one form or another. And that's why I actually in my book wanted to broaden out um, the actual concept and use the term environmental consciousness. And um, not interchangeably, uh, but sometimes interchangeably with environmentalism.
0: Yeah, one of the things that attracted me to this book, and it's several of our uh, listeners will probably remember uh, my interview with Peter Thorsheim about his book on uh, uh, the Second World War and, and recycling and how... Uh, we it, again, in his book, he sort of confronts this idea that, well, you know, the environment becomes a subject in the 1960s and 1970s, mm-hmm. and actually, he going back, he says, oh, yeah, people were recycling during, during the First World War because of because of uh, resource um, constraints and, and the need to do that. And one thing I saw in your book is that certainly the discourse on forests was, oh, we, we have to keep these forests because they're sort of uh, resources that we need for uh, building... Uh, military goods like ships and and these types of things, mm-hmm. and that if if you let the market uh, go at these things and privatize them completely, that people will just cash out and you know destroy these resources, and they might even uh, put the uh, security of the state at
1: risk. Yeah, yeah, and that I um, think is is really something that you find. I mean, even in the legislation, the sixteen sixty nine forest, one of the first comprehensive forest legislations, that's the major concern. It's actually strategic military concerns that lead people to think about conservation. But it's not a 1960s conservation in any sense. But I don't think one can discount it, in other words. Um, One has to really look at where ideas of conservation come from, and conservation has a long history, a much longer history.
0: Sure. I mean, I, th- I think this might be a good uh, point to get into the book and talk about chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, where you discuss uh, uh, Francois Roush's new harmony of nature mm-hmm. and nature as a monument to be protected. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit of, about what you're trying to achieve in this chapter and, and maybe just talk about Roush Because it's a really interesting 18th, early 19th century figure who, you know, sort of courts the French Revolution, but also courts Napoleon and as a sort of post-Napoleonic career as well.
1: Yeah. In some ways, uh, Rausch, I mean, he's considered, people refer to him as the father of French ecology, and you can see why. But what's interesting is nobody's really written about him in any systematic way, in part because he was a bit of a nut. Yeah. (laughs) Look at this whole... And I, I think, was the first person who really dug into his, the archives, the administrative file, this voluminous correspondence. He he was, you know, had this grandiosity and he was very full of himself as a figure. But what I felt very interesting about him is that he's not, you know, some great thinker. He's not Buffon, the Comte de Buffon, mm-hmm. or some of the 18th century naturalists that, um, the sort of the highbrow that that the history of science people uh, will study. He was Mm. a popularizer, and he basically picked up ideas of physiocracy, um, agronomy, all kinds of different ideas, and put them together in a very interesting way and did actually come up with this whole idea of um, a harmony of nature and um, was one of the first to actually talk about nature as a monument. And so I really, um, this is a chapter that I, I, I don't know if it came through, that I really enjoyed writing because yeah, he was yeah. such an interesting figure who um, also a tragic one in many ways. I mean, he died in poverty. He, all of his schemes never really went anywhere. But what what I wanted to use that chapter and his work um, to do was to basically identify many of the themes that I talk about in the book, um, which are, for example, the relationship between deforestation and climate change. And that is something that comes out of the 18th century, but is only really developed in the 19th century, um, and the whole science of climatology. And um, again, Rausch was no great, um, he wasn't Arago, for example, um, but he uh, was an important figure, and you find that um, he's read at the popular level. And one of the things that I was very interested in in this book, and it's something which I think in particular um, historians of science and technology and dealing with similar kinds of issues don't do enough of, um, is reception and diffusion of ideas. You know, how they trickle down, how how to people understand them at the popular level, not just the great thinkers themselves. And so that's what I was really trying to accomplish, is to identify themes and issues that I would pick up elsewhere, including his, um, I mean, he had all these strange enterprises, the Annal Européen, including um, thinking about um, climate issues and nature and the natural world in a global context. Um, mm. It isn't just France, it isn't just uh, the continent of Europe, but how this is linked together. And he actually addresses issues of empire um, mm-hmm. in in his work, uh, which I yeah. pick up with later. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting uh, how he uses the political climate of the late 18th and early 19th century to you know move from a sort of super nationalistic sort of mm-hmm. Napoleonic warfare time, and then. Uh, in the uh, post Napoleonic, uh, you know, um, uh, Concert of Europe era, he sort of embraces uh, this sort of internationalism. Yes. Uh, and that internationalism comes up again, but it comes up in a, in a different uh, way when the French sort of engage with empire. And we can talk about how the French understandings of empire sort of uh, make this sort of international. Um, kind of world scientific community.
1: Yeah, and, and what, what's also what, one of the things that was very surprising to me, um, I mean, when I started this book, I was not expecting to work on the French Empire. And then mm. it became very, very clear that I could not write this book without bringing the empire in to it. Um, and conceptions of nature and way people thought about things were different in metropolitan France and the empire. And then the other thing that I was not expecting is that the French would be in the early 20th century actually at the forefront of the first kind of international conferences Mm -hmm. um, in 1923 and then in 1933. And then, of course, there's, you know, the famous uh, sort of international conference to protect the wildlife of Africa um, Mm -hmm. in in the 30s. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, is that also it is sort of, you know, sort of like um, archaeology of knowledge as well. You know, so the Europeans, the, the French in this case, understand the value of the climate and flora and fauna and preserving them. And uh, it, it's, towards the end of the book, you talk about how uh, this is used in Algeria as as a, a means to uh, you just sort of push Arabs out of governance mm-hmm. of their environment, <laughs> not even just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like political voice, but actually sort of out out of the the managing of their environment entirely, and mm-hmm. degrading them for being you know having you know so called backward ideas on how to manage the land, and, this
1: well, and that, so. that they are they don't know how to be the stewards of the land. But it's it's only really the French that. Know how to do this, and and the French are not alone in this. I mean, um, that chapter was very much influenced by Richard Guha in his book *The Unquiet Woods*, where he talks about very similar kinds of of uh, phenomena that went on in in India with respect mm-hmm. to forests and the management of land. And you find it um, in southern Africa as well, um, but uh, the French were a bit different in that they thought that they were the inheritors of Rome, the Roman Empire. Sure, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting that that, that sort of uh, uh, notion of, of decay mm-hmm. in the 1930s, is, it manifests itself uh, acutely in their discourse of, on the environment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's, let's, let's pull back and this sort of talk a little bit about Chapter 2 and, and uh, the French Forest Ordinance. We mentioned it at the beginning, talking about how uh, the forests were sort of seen as this uh, valuable... A store of military goods in a certain sense that, you know, if you cut down all the trees and, and let um, the market sort of decide mm-hmm. their value, they would be cut down for fuel mm-hmm. and that the Royal decree actually protected them. But when the, the French, uh, monarchy was taken down, there was this, this period of chaos where, you know, uh, the, the French revolutionaries understand the value of the environment, but they don't really know how to have a, um, Cujic policy on how to protect it.
1: No, because it's all associated with um, royal protectionism, and mm-hmm. one of the big impulses of the French Revolution was to liberalize, liberalize everything, and mm-hmm. they liberalized professions so that nobody, everybody had a right to 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 pursue any profession that they wanted to, which was not allowed in the old regime. Um, so it was part of the whole liberalizing campaign. And yet, gradually over time, people realized it had consequences, and um, and there e- and even proponents of that liberalization, um, <coughs> whom I mentioned, Rougier et La bergerie, um, basically just made it made a U turn on it and said, no, we've got we've got to change all of this. Uh, so it was a particular moment, uh, probably the sort of so called devastations of the French Revolution. Have been exaggerated, many um historians of the eighteenth century uh think that that is so, but it definitely led to the eighteen twenty seven forest code, where you know at least some kind of um, state provisions were put in place to regulate uh forests
0: yeah i mean it, it's interesting uh it seems almost kind of familiar, it seems like perhaps something that would happen. You know, uh, even in like uh, the twentieth century in, in post-Soviet time, where you know the, there's this sort of monopoly on resources, and then there's this period in the nineties where there's this, this chaos mm-hmm. and, during liberalization, and then then they have to have whole new uh, a whole new uh, you know uh, regulation regime put in mm-hmm. place that that might not necessarily be initially adequate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but it, it's it's interesting though that throughout chapter two these. Uh, all the characters, and, and one of the great things about this book is that you do people the the environmental history. Mm-hmm. You know, so often, we sort of read uh, environmental history; they're all sort of organizations that are faceless. Yeah. And it's one of the great things that you you accomplished in this is that giving you gave these these um, uh, actors sort of voice and, and face, and sort of made them part of their time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, like, just as a writer, did you did you? Uh, shape that deliberately, or was that that you know just something that kind of came along when you were writing uh, your book?
1: Uh, I think I did it um, deliberately, for the very reason that that <laughs> that uh, you you uh, or the for, for the reason that you suggest, which is that I find a lot of um, you know discussions of some some of these issues to be very disembodied. You know, you kind of where did the where does it come from? What sort of individual is espousing this? What, um, where are they located politically? Where are they located socially? Um, and I think that um, it gives the story a texture which is important. And and so so I, I I did deliberately do that. I mean I I really went out. I mean I certainly did that in the first chapter and did serious research on each of these people. I really wanted to find um, find out all I could to understand. How they arrived at the ideas that they arrived at, um mm-hmm. and so yes, i mean that I'm, I'm glad that you see this as, as as something that i that's in there and because it's certainly what I've tried to do,
0: yeah, and also sort of as like a a i guess it kind of an intellectual history you t- you talk about how so many of these these uh actors uh, Bergeri, uh in particular have come out of the physiocratic tradition. Mm-hmm. So they do have this sort of idea that, okay, well, this is about uh, land and it's about water and it's about agriculture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain point where, you know, these things are, are affected negatively by deforestation. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about, maybe we can go back and talk about sort of the role of forests and, and the discourses on their value and, and how people s- sort of thought that there might be um, Responsible for droughts and floods. It's a huge part of your book. You're talking about water management and how deforestation sort of exacerbates uh, sort of uh, flooding in France across the century.
1: I mean the other thing which I was not expecting to find when I started the book and doing the research on the book is this obsession with floods and the fact that there were so many really major floods in the 19th century, in particular the 1856 flood and, of course, the 1910 flood, in which Paris was almost completely underwater. And it was quite ironical that the book came out um, the end of March, early April, depending on, I don't exactly know when it went to the bookstores. But uh, I then, I was in France from March to July this year, and I don't know whether you followed the news, but there was a huge flood in Paris, and I went down to the, you know, I mentioned in the book the Zouave statue, which is Mm -hmm. the popular marker for how high the uh, water levels are and so on, and so I always saw this sort of, you know, right before my eyes, this kind of recreation of what I had been studying and what I'd been reading, and I found it, you know, very interesting that, just the connections that are made between forests, uh, water management, water purity, um, in, in, in some, in some cases. And what also I think I, I, I wanted to, I mean, this is a study of, of France, France and France's empire, um, is that the story, I mean, you, you, um, have studied uh, Britain. The story is very different in Britain. I mean, the British are not a- obsessed with forests. Forest isn't very a big part of of Br- British environmentalism. It's really. I mean, you've spoken. Uh, Thorsheim also wrote it. I think it was his first book. British environment. Other other sort of countries' environmentalisms are shaped by different conditions. And in Britain, it was really because, you know, this was an industrial country. France is not an industrial country. It wasn't until after the First World War. Sure. It means, you know, I mean, it, it industrialized, but it never really had an you know, industrial revolution. And it was very, it was it was a predominantly rural country um, until 19, really, the 1920s. Mm-hmm. So the story of, you know, how people... Think about the environment, protect the environment, are very much determined by economies, and I think that's why forests were, are so central to this subject in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be in Britain. Um, Germany is a more complicated. Country.
0: Yeah, I, I, I wanted to, at some point in the interview, talk about German Romanticism and, and talk about uh, sort of. In, in Germany, there is this sort of long history of romanticizing forests and hills, and, you know, wander and all all yeah. this. And and in in your book, there is there is um, definitely hints at a sort of similar French romanticism. Sure, sure. Um, as an inheritance, like a you know, uh, we towards the end of the book, um, when you're talking about uh, protecting um, uh, forests at Fontainebleau, yes. you talk about how it, it it originally is this sort of place where. Painters kind of go for inspiration, yes. but eventually it becomes this sort of bourgeois and then middle class uh, symbol for you know French identity yeah. that sort of it. Yeah, yeah. Um. It
1: becomes a, it becomes heritage. It becomes patrimoine, um, and you know it's it's very interesting to 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 think about this, comparing it to a very different sort of language, but. Uh, articulated in, in, in a different form in the United States, this kind of valorization of wilderness, which doesn't exist in France. It's the it's the historic forests and so on. And that's why, you know, I found um, the whole, uh, I was very amused by it, actually, this whole debate about the you know, introducing pines into the forest and, and so forth. So, so funny, you know, these are not French trees. They're Russian trees. They shouldn't be here. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, there, there's this interesting tension as well on this sort of idea that, that France wants to take in all these sort of foreign botanical species and try to, try to, especially in the 18th century, but even in the 19th century, they're trying to experiment with what's going to grow best in France and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but again, like, they're, 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 you know, rushing trees, you know, like they're, they're, um, I believe there's a scheme to have breadfruit yes. or something in Paris that you talk about. And, and these things are so kind of alien in some sense, but also the, the sort of exp, uh, spirit of experimentation and discovery is, is very com- like Yes. Um,
1: and and, and, I, and I think um, the other, the other aspect of the book that um, I, I, you know, wanted to, to show as well as the, is really the importance of what was in the old regime the Jardin du Roi or the Museum of Natural History. I mean, you see it's important in the revolution and um, also very important in those international conferences. Um, many people associated and many people now in, Al- in Algeria who are talking about deforestation, they're associated with the Museum of Natural History um, as well. And, you know, just very, very surprising things. I mean, for the earlier part of the book, in terms of this museum of natural history and responsible for bringing in these breadfruits and so on into the country, acclimatizing animals and plants. I mean, I found it amazing that in 1793, in really the most radical phase of the revolution, French had to, a lot to worry about. There was a civil war. They were at war with all of Europe. And the staff at the Museum of Natural History were going around and getting the plants out of the gardens of the aristocrats who were getting arrested and executed. Um, mm-hmm. You know that they, they were collecting plants. I mean, it, it's it's really quite surreal if you think about it. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, no, that that is that's actually, yeah, I didn't I didn't think of it quite like that, but yeah, you're right, you're right. You do talk about that. That that is. Um... I don't know that 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 spirit of discovery, even in times of uh, sort of uh, rapid change or, or violence, or is is something that you know maybe there's a PhD dissertation on that, <laughs> you know, trying to divorce yourself from reality to have this sense of discovery or, mm. yeah, I don't know that that's interesting. One of the things that that I also wanted to talk to talk to you about is you talk about not only sort of maintaining the environment as this sort of monument and this sort of heritage. But you also talk a lot, quite often actually, um, about um, its relationship to health, Mm -hmm. especially in um, the era of Louis Napoleon and and trying to remake remake Paris, but also try to make um, this sort of um, rationalized, clean environment Uh, originally for the sort of uh, upper middle class bourgeoisie and then it kind of goes down to the working class Mm -hmm. by the
1: 1930s. Yeah that's an important part of um, um, especially the last chapter the greeting of Paris Mm -hmm. Um, and it's really what frequently is called in France the the hygiene revolution. Um, I mean the whole notion of of Hygiene um, emerges in thinking about pollution in cities um, of of various kinds. And um, you only have the first sort of chair of hygiene um, in the university system in the late 18th century. And this is also something that feeds very, very directly into... um, Concerns about the environment. Simply, you know, you're killing people with the environment. Therefore, you've got to have some kind of regulation in terms of where you put manufacturing concerns. And actually, one of the most um, uh, far, you know, kind of progressive and far reaching was put in place in the Napoleonic period, um, which was surprising to me, in part because, as I've said, you know, France was really not like Britain, um, industrializing at a great, very great pace. But this is a constant concern, primarily in urban areas, from the eighteen thirties, eighteen forties, right up to the the First World War. Yes.
0: Also, there it's really interesting when you're talking, uh, especially in Chapter Three and Chapter Four about um, Napoleon the Third and uh, his his sort of actions to try to seem like he was doing something after all these floods. Mm-hmm. And one of these one of the things that you show really really uh, acutely is that he was a great propagandist. He used uh, the new science of uh, new technology of photographs, and he also had paintings um, commissioned of him, like visiting flood zones and yeah. acting like he was you know uh, this engaged leader that was helping people.
1: Right, and and I think that that is actually very interesting because that is also um, something that it beha- becomes part of the modern world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the 18th century, yes, you had the king. if some natural disaster happened, it was terrible, and the king tried to help, and certainly the church and so on. But the whole notion, what I did find in in my research is that at the very popular level, the people of France increasingly began to think that the government actually had a role in doing something about these problems, that you couldn't just sort of, you know, leave them, they happened, uh, you you had to set up some kind of mechanism. And one of the things I found very interesting is that Napoleon III actually um, asked the French people to write to him and tell him, do you have any ideas about what to do about these floods? And they did. And in the National Archives in Paris, um, there are about uh, 10 boxes that I went through of these responses of people. I mean, many of them are crazy, um, blaming the government, you didn't do this right, and the Office of Bridges and Roads, and so on and so forth. I find that interesting. I mean, when you think even take it, let's say, to the United States, think about Katrina and the whole notion of should a leader go down there? And, mm-hmm. uh, remember the whole controversy about Bush didn't go there. Um, and and I think that um, this is the first time in France that you have this leader who really um, mediatizes um, in, an environmental disaster in, in a very significant way.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it uh, a very acute use of, of sort of a national... Uh, crisis to sort of uh, increase or or cement your national power. Mm -hmm. This is a very interesting uh, kind of idea.
1: The other thing Um. I wanted to just um, mention about this is that um, you know, as I said at the beginning I mean, I really wanted to look at this question from all angles, economic social, Mm -hmm. and then one of them is the political. Getting back to my very early statements about you know, people dating French environmentalism to the 1960s um, Michael Bess in particular um, you know arguing that one can only consider something being environmentalism when it's on the left wing of the political spectrum. But as you see yeah. in my book it isn't located really it's located in a lot of different places and sure. Napoleon III is actually one of the most right wing authoritarian figures you can imagine and yet the, the uh, the measures uh, that were taken to uh, the reforestation measures and various measures that were taken were actually put in place in that very authoritarian period. So I think it, it makes one want to rethink um, you know environmentalism. What it, what does it mean exactly politically? Um, it, uh, historically, it has all it's not always been anywhere located anywhere in particular and then the other thing I mean the chapter I'm just talking about the politics of this on Algeria on the anxieties of empire is that you know Sometimes environmental protection or you know the the concern about reforestation and the Algerians don't know how to manage the land we've got to you know kind of get them off the land and and so on Um, there's a darker there can be a darker side to environmentalism in terms of the human cost let's say to pastoral populations um you know grazing sheep in the mountains or something
0: yeah i mean it, it it's uh it's important to note that environmentalism does have this history or prehistory of uh paternalism yeah. you know it's very paternal we know better than you, you know like we know how to manage the environment and you don't you know. Um, and our objectives are inherently more important than your objectives. Mm-hmm. These kinds of
1: things. Mm-hmm.
0: Then Napoleon the Third thing is very very interesting, it being sort of a like like you say a, a quite far right empire at that time, but also sort of being engaged with the environment. And we wouldn't call it sort of our familiar kind of green left yeah. environmentalism. No. Um, and maybe has some sort of. Analog with the 1930s in Germany exactly. or something. You Some know,
1: people, it, yeah.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. You know, occasionally there, there are books, um, uh, I forget who wrote it, but How Green Were the Nazis? These sort of yeah.
1: ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's less a discussion that has gone on in France um, because we don't have quite exactly, you know, the, we did have the Vichy regime and in. Uh, during the German occupation, which was which was a very right-wing, quasi-fascist regime, but I mean, it's not quite the same thing as the Nazis. But some of the same issues, you know, could be raised uh, very legitimately in the in the French context.
0: Yeah, this idea of kind of a cultural regeneration as well as an environmental yeah. regeneration. Yeah, yeah and it, there is this tension in your book also at points where it seems like it, it, it's more Protection of this, this sort of imagined environment at certain points, rather than a a sort of regeneration. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these sites are, are historically important sites, and um, they want to keep uh, uh, important sites uh, in in City of Paris, but in other places, uh, to keep the sort of uh, imagined mm-hmm. uh, imagined past alive in a certain sense as a sort of propaganda, or mm-hmm. as as we said, a heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. It's one of the things I really liked about your book. Um, I think this might be a good time to talk about empire and the role of these um, uh, international conventions mm-hmm. and, and how the French understood their role as, it, the role of uh, protecting the environment in the imperial project.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what is interesting about um, many of these initiatives, I think, is it comes out of a whole... Uh, set of associations which have not been um, studied very closely, um, such as the Society for the Protection of the Landscapes of France, the, the Alpine Club, you know, there are a whole series of different kinds of clubs and associations that really um, are located in civil society um, that come together. Or the Society for the Protection of Birds, and in, in, in very important ways in France, and it's actually these organizations. In and there are some sort of quasi-governmental organizations, such as the um, Acclimatization Society, that was established in 1853 in the in the Museum of Natural History. Um, but it's it's very interesting that actually these international initiatives did were sponsored by states um, and by individual countries, but they actually came from civil society, not just in France. Um, And it's these organizations that called for um, the first Congress for the Protection of Nature, which was held in Paris, Um, the second one, um, and then moved into, they really began... um, on the European continent um, among various European associations and organizations of similar kinds. Um, also those wanting to create uh, for the first time parks um, or reserves of, of various kinds. Some modeled on one of the first the Yellowstone Park in the 1870s and, and, um, mm-hmm. and it's also very significant to me that um, there was a park, a national park, established in France, uh, Peru, which I talk about in 1913, in an Alpine region of France. But the first system of parks were established in Algeria, French Algeria, not in France, yeah. not in metropolitan France. And the once again the obsession with forests; it was forested land, and uh, this was followed by Madagascar uh, as well. So this is a kind of of movement that comes out of civil society, <clears throat> is primarily focused on Europe, and then gradually extends to empire at a moment where you have really the height of the European empires, which is the 19, 1930s. Sure,
0: sure. Um, it is interesting you mentioned... Uh when they're trying to make up this, this new system of of parks. They look at the United States and they're like, oh well, mm-hmm. it would be really hard to build uh, or, or find a, a Yellowstone equivalent in Algeria. Yep. But they they have their own sort of system of you know trying to protect the, the forests and, and and partially it's because it's it's deemed essential to the Imperial project because if they get rid of the forests, it might not be as habitable for European right. settlement. Right. And that, that's something that that uh, is, is just, it, it's something uh, sort of capturing a, a snapshot of, the, like you said, the anxieties of the 1930s.
1: Yeah, it would not be be um, habitable. And then there's this whole kind of, you know, you know sort of very strange rhetoric of how um, you have to restore this landscape of, of, of Northern Africa, to resemble as much as possible the Mediterranean landscape, actually, of France or, or on the other side of the Mediterranean. And this, you know, great fear of the encroachment of the deserts that is associated, actually, with this whole language of, of um, the invasion of the Muslim horde. So it's almost a kind of apocalyptic, civilizational um, uh, narrative that becomes embedded in an environmental narrative. Um, in a very, in a very strange way, I think one could say. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, no, it, it, it is really interesting on how the sort of the the encroachment of the desert on uh, Algeria is just is just sort of byword or, or metaphor for this sort of idea that that maybe uh, the Arabs will take control of Algeria mm-hmm. and the French will sort of lose their sort of crown jewel of their empire. Mm-hmm. But it was also interesting too because. And you and you talk about this. Um, you know, we we often people that study empires so talk, want to talk about this imperial project um, as as it, if it is entirely deliberate and well organized all the time. And you talk about how it was incredibly difficult to get the disparate uh, interests to pick where these reserves would be and how uh, these this land should be managed. And you know, mm-hmm. if all of the forest should be saved or some of it, and you know, you the state and the bar um, settlers, and then you also have, you know, sort of native Algerians trying to, trying to, you know, uh, they have different stakes in this environmental yeah. Uh, discourse.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and and that's actually something throughout the whole book that I wanted to emphasize, not just there, uh, but the kind of cacophony. Of in terms of the voices, um, you know, calling for protection and the reasons for it, there's no unif. There's really no unified project, in fact, and there are a lot of of competing interests. And you can certainly see it in in the in uh, the context of French colonial Algeria, but you can also see it in France. Um, I mean, the other example of this would be in the Forest of Fontainebleau. The painters mm. thought. You know, they had a very clear idea of you should have these artistic reserves where nobody should go in it except for the painters or the people who enjoyed it. Um, and the foresters also thought that they were protecting the environment, but they had a very different idea. You manage it, you don't just let it go wild, which is what the painters mm-hmm. thought. And so they both thought that, you know, they were, in, in essence, protecting the environment, but for In different ways and for different reasons and with different Mm -hmm. strategies and so it shows you actually how difficult it was um, whether you're talking about the Empire or metropolitan France to bring groups together.
0: For sure yeah I mean one of the great things about your book is is that that's so familiar in our age you know we have have serious environmental challenges and you know there there are we sort of understand that we have these problems but not everyone is sort of invested in resolving them. <laughs> and, and we have this sort of um, interesting, again, cacophony of voices. And oftentimes it's the loudest people that get the most airtime. And, you know, that's not always, you know, conducive to actually having a policy that works Yeah, for, for the most, you know, yeah.
1: but, it's but interesting I, I do think, think that, I mean, this whole question of, you know, making certain kinds of environments habitable for Europeans was an obsession among Europeans in all empires. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I'm thinking, let's say, um, you know, the work of Mark Harrison, Climates and Constitutions you know, in, in India, you know, the whole debate about you know, whether the British could actually acclimatize, and whether men sure. could acclimatize and women. And I found the whole gender dimension very interesting, too, in that uh, discussion of acclimatization um and so there you know the stakes are are very high um in all of these imperial colonial contexts
0: yeah exactly i mean it, it, this is a time where that there you know there are still rather high uh mortality rates mm-hmm. and you're investing a whole bunch of money in these mm-hmm. these sort of full, far off lands and you know if they, you know the settlers die when they get there mm-hmm. Uh, in droves, it's it's not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, no one's going to be able to agree that this is a this is a policy that they can follow.
1: Yeah, and actually, there's a very interesting book um, um, by um, a colleague who teaches at Toronto, Eric Jennings, called "Curing the Colonizer," and essentially it's about the spas that are um, created. For example, Vichy. And he studied uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Dalat, this kind of – and think of the British hill stations. You know, that, that mm-hmm. was part of the purpose of the the hill stations, to get the, the British up there in, you know, the the hottest um, period of the year. And, um, and Jennings actually makes an argument that where these kinds of spas or hill stations, whatever you want to call them, where they were um, created uh, – was in places that resembled as much as possible the climates back home.
0: Sure. Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. I mean, it's, it, it is interesting. It, it, it uh, you know, it, it sort of, it, it makes this sort of, you know, big gaping hole of this sort of idea of European sort of uh, superiority when you have to go to a familiar climate, you know, just to survive there for, you know, whatever the, the toughest part of the year.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um yeah that's let's, let's talk about it, getting towards the end now um the greeting of paris and 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 how the French government decided that that would be sort of the the new paris a sort of green healthy hygienic city as mm-hmm. opposed to sort of a you know um almost medieval you know post medieval you know mm-hmm. um unhealthy one.
1: okay well actually that um is it's interesting because it's out of that chapter. That, um my new project is born. Um, okay, excellent. Um, excellent. so and actually i've I've just started that project. I've almost finished the first article to come out of the project, and basically, um, the first article is is uh, is about the Paris housing crisis and the environmental revolution in domestic architecture is what it's called. Um, on the eve of the first world war and basically i do talk about what is an eternal problem in paris which is how we've got it in new york you've got it in lots of different places a housing crisis affordable housing for particularly the poor um, the middle classes but uh, all of those environmental hygienic concerns um, that i talk about in my book began to really be focused on discussions of what do we do about the housing crisis and how do we create housing that's affordable but not only affordable but hygienic and there's a whole debate that starts in the 1890s about we've got to create a new kind of architecture and it can't be houseman's paris and it can't be those kinds of buildings you can no longer have these enclosed courtyards where the air doesn't circulate. You've got to think about the orientation of buildings. You've got to think about sunlight. You have to think about bringing green spaces in. All these concerns, which nobody really thought about before, um, suddenly become an issue. You have the first legislation that's passed um, that for the creation of affordable housing, for the first it's the poor and then it's for... What we might call the middle class with modest means, um, and that continues into the post world war uh, one period when you had the devastations in the cities and so on and what's very interesting is it it leads to what I would argue is the transformation in architecture and in the built environment um, which incorporates this these kinds of concerns, and it's a new hygienic environmental architecture. So um, that's when you know, you're really kind of moving into the cities in a way most of my book does not, the natural interests, and looking at the relationship between all of the sort of ideas that I discuss in the book and then how this feeds into um, a built environment. What is the relationship between a built environment and a natural environment? And, of course, this is a, a period in which um, you know, the concept of urbanism and the urbanist also is born. And so that's what I'm working on um, now. And I'm making a kind of argument that actually this environmental revolution in architecture is what leads to um, what one might call architectural modernism in in the 1920s and 30s, thinking about Art Deco and some of the. Um, I'm not talking about Le Corbusier, who uh, is my name. I was just going to say Corbusier
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I was like, oh yeah, that, that he, he is not like he's not yet. what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> and and the thing is, Le Corbusier I think has sort of appropriated I modernism, and he isn't. And there's a whole other slew of architects I'm working on, young architects in particular, coming out of the Beaux Arts, who, which is, you know, elite architectural school in the world in this in this period, uh, school of fine arts, who actually reject all the precepts and begin to think in these hygienic environmental ways.